Here is the problem. I have learned that your government has decided to take measures against stateless persons. I am greatly distressed by the fate that awaits us. My husband and I were born in Russia, and our parents immigrated during the revolution. Our two children are French. We have been living in France for 20 years, and we have never left the country. I cannot believe, sir, that no distinction is made between the undesirable and the honorable foreigners, those who have done everything possible to deserve the royal welcome France has given them. I therefore ask for your kindness in including me and my family in the latter category of people, so that we can reside freely in France and so that I may continue to exercise my profession as a novelist. In this episode of Death and Numbers, part of a series on international women's history, we talk about author Irene Nemirovsky, who wrote this letter in 1942 to Marshal Pétain, the head of the Vichy government. She attempted to present herself as an honorable Frenchwoman in order to save herself and her family. This was not the first time Nemirovsky's family had been targeted. In 1917, her upper-class banking family fled Russia, terrified they would be targeted by the communist revolutionaries. Exiled in France, Nemirovsky thrived. By the 1930s, she was a well-established author in the country. Capable of living by her pen, she had assimilated into Parisian society and surrounded herself with the literary elite. Although she never received citizenship, she considered herself French and chose to write in the language of her adopted country. By June 14, 1940, that all changed. As Nazis marched into Paris, the French government relocated to a quaint southern spa town known as Vichy. For the next four years, the Vichy government would collaborate with their Nazi occupiers to systematically remove all Jews from their country, beginning with the foreign Jews. And this is why Irene Nemirovsky was concerned. For what she neglects to mention in her letter to Marshal Pétain is that in addition to being a Russian immigrant, Nemirovsky and her husband Michael Epstein were Jews. Furthermore, the two were no longer solvent. All Jewish bank accounts in France had been seized by the Vichy government, and the auto list of July 1942 banned Nemirovsky from publishing within France. Essentially, the family had neither access to money nor the means to earn it. Unfortunately, there is no simple explanation as to why Nemirovsky neglected to mention her Jewish status in her letter to Marshal Pétain. Perhaps it is because she did not consider herself particularly religious. She never practiced Judaism and sought to suppress any connection she had to the Jewish community, when she moved to Paris. Or maybe because she had converted to Catholicism in 1939, believing the conversion would protect her children from religious persecution. While her relationship with her Jewish identity is bewildering, Nemirovsky was determined to be identified as a member of the Parisian literary elite. To best understand Nemirovsky, perhaps we should turn to her novels. Her success stemmed from several factors. She had a critical view of the world, both in the public and private sphere. Her style frankly confronted the world around her, attracting many admirers, but also many critics. David Golder was her first novel, published in 1928. It follows the titular character, a Russian Jew born on the Black Sea, as he gains his wealth through a career of speculation. Golder is described as greedy and cruel with a hooked nose, a stereotypical portrait of the contemporary Jewish man. 
the novel's prose is ruthless. Her writing coldly presents this cross-section of European society fueled by self-interest. This novel, as well as later writings in anti-Semitic magazines, led to Nemirovsky being labeled a self-hating Jew. In 2008, the Museum of Jewish Art and History in Paris even refused to host an exhibition of her writing. The director of the museum justified her decision by accusing Nemirovsky of self-hatred. Nemirovsky's relationship with the Jewish community is complicated, but there is evidence that she may have had some remorse for the depiction of Jews in her earlier works as a result of the political shifts in Jews' civil statuses in the 1930s. When interviewed in 1935 about David Golder, which had been published seven years earlier, Nemirovsky said, It is absolutely certain that had there been Hitler, I would have greatly softened David Golder, and I would not have written it in the same way. And yet, I would have been wrong. It would have been a weakness unworthy of a real writer. As demonstrated by this interview, her allegiance was to the literary community. She was not interested in recanting the portraits in the novel, despite their political incorrectness. Nor was she interested in what Jean-Paul Sartre famously described as engaged literature. She explained this decision to distance herself from politicized literature, saying, I have lived at least half my life under the threat of revolutionary disturbances, threats which have frequently become reality. In any case, you never know what tomorrow will bring. The good thing about work is that it makes you forget. For Nemirovsky, literature was an escape from politics, even the politics of her identity. And yet, not even her writing could distance her from persecution for her Jewishness. Within the period of two years, Nemirovsky went from an independent, self-sufficient, and acclaimed author to a trapped refugee in her adopted country. Exiled from all that she considered home, Nemirovsky focused her efforts on documenting the society that had morphed in a few short years, from one of strength and liberty to one of chaos and fear, in her manuscript for a new novel. That is until July 13, 1942, when... There was a knock on the door. She knew why the police had come, but there were no tears, Denise recalled. She just told me to look after my father. She said farewell to us, but I had no idea it was the final farewell, the last time I would see my mother. Betrayed by her neighbors to local police, Irene Nemirovsky was arrested and deported to the Pitvier concentration camp on the charge of being a foreign Jew. Eventually, the Nazis transported her to Auschwitz, where she died of typhus. Shortly after, her husband was deported and killed. They left behind two daughters, Denise and Elisabeth. By 1944, an estimated 77,000 French Jewish residents had been deported to Nazi concentration and extermination camps. Few survived the Holocaust. With the aid of others and pure chance, both of Nemirovsky's daughters survived. Before Michael Epstein was arrested, he left his daughters a suitcase, filled with a notebook in their mother's handwriting. Fearing the anguish it would bring them to read their dead mother's diary, the suitcase remained in the care of a notary for half a century. That is until the early 1990s. Denise began reading and discovered the notebook was more than just a diary. It was the contents of a novel, Sweet Française. Now too fragile for display, the leather-bound notebook has a simple embossed border and the initials IE, Irene Epstein, her married name, in the upper left-hand corner. As both paper and ink were scarce, Nemirovsky's handwriting is cramped. 
there are 201 pages to the manuscript, which typed amount to an over 500-page novel. It alternates between black and blue ink and keeps the minimal space necessary between lines, only indenting for new chapters and to indicate speech. Nearly half of each page is crossed out. Denise took the unfinished manuscript and set it to type. The completed chapters, Storm in June and Dolce, were part of an intended five-chapter volume. The last three chapters were drafted as Captivity, War, and Peace. Paris had its sweetest smell, the smell of chestnut trees in bloom and of petrol with a few grains of dust that crack under your teeth like pepper. In the darkness, the danger seemed to grow. You could smell the suffering in the air, in the silence. Everyone looked at their house and thought, tomorrow it will be in ruins. Tomorrow I'll have nothing left. Despite its incomplete status, Sweet Française is a harrowingly intimate portrait of the effects of Nazi occupation on French residents a well-preserved time capsule providing a glimpse into the period through an emphasis on the quotidian. It reveals that the panoply of reactions to the occupation was the result not only of socioeconomic status, but also of human nature, demonstrating how fear and the desire for self-preservation predominated a desire to resist oppression for the greater good. Published in 2004, Sweet Francaise became a bestseller, claiming the prestigious literary prize, the Prix Renaudot, and it was translated into over 30 languages, spending two years atop the New York Times bestseller list. While Denise poured years into the publication of her mother's final novel, her sister Elizabeth decided to work through her grief by writing. As a member of what Susan Suleiman describes as the 1.5 generation, child survivors of the Holocaust, too young to have had an adult understanding of what was happening to them, but old enough to have been there during the Nazi persecution of Jews, Elisabeth is trapped between generations of experience. At the time of her parents' deportation, she was five years old, old enough to remember, but too young to understand. In the early 1990s, Elisabeth wrote the novel The Watchtower, Dreamed Memories, in which she began to work through these recollections by taking on the voice of her deceased mother. Marketed as a memoir, The Watchtower is divided into two parts. The first is titled Irene Nemirovsky, November 1929, and the second, Irene Nemirovsky, June 1942. The novel is written in the first person, with Elizabeth assuming the voice of her mother, as if it were an autobiography. Interspersed between chapters of these two parts are flashbacks to Elizabeth's childhood. Elizabeth distances herself from her own experiences by writing in the third person, for the imagined memories being narrated are not only those of her mother, but also of her younger self. In the process of writing the novel, Elizabeth partakes in both her mother's and her own trauma. The novel serves as a form of atonement for her mother's self-hating Jewishness, but also a form of catharsis for the trauma of being orphaned by the Holocaust and having to come to terms with her French-Jewish identity. Elisabeth defends her mother in writing. In The Watchtower, she fabricates a scenario of remorse for her mother's self-hating Jewishness. She imagines her mother reflecting on David Golder and realizing that, I am seized at times by a kind of vertigo as I repent having written that book. I wonder if by excoriating the social milieu from which I had come, and which I hated so, I have furnished anti-Semites with ammunition. 
I wonder whether I gave proof of a suicidal flightiness and thoughtlessness. In this one scene, Elizabeth insinuates that surely her mother would have felt these sentiments once she recognized that Jews were being systematically persecuted. While Nemirovsky's sentiments about her Jewish identity can only be the subject of speculation, Elizabeth's feelings about them have been made clear. In 1992, while promoting the Watchtower, she criticized her mother's literary decisions, writing, Her blindness was criminal. During the 1930s, even in her novels, she was not in the least bit moved by the fate of poor Jews in the working-class areas of Paris. This frustration with her mother can be understood in the context of Elisabeth working through her own French-Jewish identity and the suffering she endured as a result of it. In one of the novel's flashbacks, dated April 1957, Elisabeth wonders, What does it mean, exactly, to be a Jew? She is haunted by her Jewish identity, particularly after reading Sartre's Anti-Semite and the Jew. While Sartre agrees that a Jew is defined in relation to others— Someone is only a Jew to the extent that society considers them a Jew. Elisabeth cannot agree. Instead, she desires a connection with the Jewish people that she cannot comprehend, especially as she is an atheist. So this is the answer? Are we only Jewish in the eyes of the other? She wants to understand, but the Sartrean explanation cannot explain the powerful sense of belonging she has recently begun to feel, despite being an atheist, this powerful sense of pride at belonging to a people who, despite persecutions and massacres, never cease to procreate, even in sadness. A significant portion of her flashbacks is dedicated to moments like these, questioning her position as a Jew in France, just as her mother must have done. In working through these questions about her mother and her Jewish identity, Elisabeth is also reliving the traumatic experience of being orphaned at five years old. Coupled with the loss of her parents is the rejection by her maternal grandmother following the war's end. In January 1945, Elisabeth and Denise were brought out of hiding to the house of Nemirovsky's mother, Fanny. However, the response they receive is not a welcoming one. Described as a wolf with a strong Russian accent, the lack of compassion Fanny demonstrates for her orphaned grandchildren is painful to witness, suggesting that the unfortunate duo be placed in an institution for destitute children instead of taking them in, when she had the means to do so, haunts Elizabeth's memories. Instead of being raised by family, the sisters are abandoned by their last living relative. Elizabeth continues to confront moments such as these in her writing. In the entry dated December 1956, she recalls, The child emerges from the cinema, blinded by her tears. On a whim, she had gone alone to see night and fog. This is the first time she has faltered. Until now, she had stubbornly refused to know. Just as she had come to terms with her mother's anti-Semitic writings, she too had to come to terms with the horrors of her parents' murders. Understanding was the most painful act for Elizabeth. The knowledge of the death camps, her mother's imperfections, her grandmother's rejection. Each of these brief moments provides a glimpse into the residual effects of her trauma that she attempted to work through in her writing. The Watchtower ends with an entry dating October 1991, with the following quote. Her children, Denise and Elizabeth, who were arrested with their father, were saved. Acknowledging both the random and haphazard nature of her survival, Elizabeth concluded her transgenre narrative, 
determined to be finished with her story and to let history speak moving forward. This has been Death in Numbers, a podcast created and produced by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. We are Amy Viter and Caroline Barda. Notes for the show, including links and photos, can be found on our website, humanitiesmediaproject.org. Our theme music is Enthusiast by Tours. Thank you for listening.